0: Welcome back, everyone, to The Voice of Hope. Uh, today, I wanted to stop by The Voice of Hope, and I wanted to share an interview that I had on The Voice of Hope Facebook show last Wednesday night, May the 19th, 2021, with Krista Ottenbach. She shared her testimony of overcoming addiction. So if there's anybody out there uh, that you know that's struggling with addiction, uh, share this podcast with them because it could really bless them. And if you happen to be struggling with addiction yourself, I hope that this gives you hope. So here is Krista as she shares her testimony from the voice of hope. Oh, we got her. Hey, girl. This is Krista Autombach. <laughs> we finally did it after months we have been talking for like over almost two years now and i don't know if you but back about uh yeah almost two years ago we tried this could not get her up on the voice of hope it just would not work uh the voice of hope on facebook they had quit where you could add someone live and i was like oh well Come the following year, she was on my radio show when uh, I used to be in the radio. Those of you who have watched the radio program, during the radio interview, we got knocked off three or four times. So we're here tonight and we made it. So delay, but not denial, right? So I thank God delayed this for a reason and uh i'm so glad to have krista on tonight like i said invite anyone out tonight to watch this video i know they're going to be blessed by her story and uh, krista how are you doing
1: tonight girl girl i'm so happy to be here oh my gosh we have been whew, we made it <laughs> no we it even it. tried it tonight did it not it tried I it have- tonight I know, ain't
0: no devil gonna tread on us tonight. though. No. uh, uh, no. This interview's uh, going, on. We, going on. we have We have we have word for this interview. You guys don't even know how long. I mean, not just to get on the air, but in our flesh, spiritually. So this is God is going to move in some lives tonight. Like I said, I want you to. Listen, everyone that comes on The Voice of Hope, I am so honored that the friendships I have got to have,
1: okay, I'm not going to cry,
0: with so many people that God's playing my life, because I know it takes a lot of courage to be raw and real and to tell your story, because I know what it was like for me for that very first time when I came on the voice of hope and told you just a little part of my life. So I feel honored uh, when everyone comes on, anyone comes on and tells their story. So uh, without further ado, uh, Krista is going to share her story that she struggled with for many years with addiction. And uh, she has blessed me so much. She has given me hope. Or my loved ones that have suffered with addiction. And um, I'm just, she just, all of a sudden I said, when you're ready sis to tell more of your story, let me know. And we just kind of had, you know, not been talking about it for a while. And a couple months ago she said, I'm ready. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) And so here we are tonight. So um, thank you girl for coming home and wanting to tell your story and uh for being a friend and and, uh Mm. why don't you introduce yourself a little bit tell people a little bit about you and uh kind of take it from there
1: all right first off i love you girl you know it i do i do i'm so honored that Michelle brought us together, and you know, just because of a testimony, and for all y'all out there that are scared to share your testimony, share it. You got to share it. You have to share it. You must. And uh, because it can help somebody out, and it, that testimony brought us together, and now look what look what all has happened. You know, thank you, Jesus. So, uh But my name is uh, Crystal LaShawn Altenbach, and um, I was a drug addict for 20 years. Um, Thank you, Jesus. And I thank the Lord for everything that I went through. This isn't a story of, of a survivor. This is a story of an overcomer. And... I'm so grateful for every single thing that I ever went through, because for every one thing that you go through, there's millions that can be helped, you know, so let me just start off with that. And my shirt says, and you got to excuse us, the one angle wouldn't work with the tripod, so I'm using a little hand pot, whatever, but it says, dope without dope and full of God's hope. I love it. I love your shirt. I noticed that before
0: we did. I know. And I got on purple. I don't think you can see it. My head's got off. (laughs) But uh, we were talking about that before the interview. Uh, And I wanted to say that I'm glad you brought that up. If it wasn't for Michelle Penninger-Johns, oh my goodness. She is such a blessing to me. She has connected me with so many people. Oh gosh, I'm not going <laughs> to. She's connected me with so many people, and I remember almost two years ago. She's like, "You need to listen to Krista Autumnbox's story," and she shared just a little bit when uh, Krista had first just was barely just skimming her testimony, and uh, so I clicked on it, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, I've got to connect with her," and thank you, Michelle for connecting me with Krista. Thank you for connecting me with all the people you do praying for me. Uh, it means the world to me. I love you dearly. And, uh, if it had not been for Michelle, we would probably have never connected. So, um, I believe those are divine connections. God puts people in our life for a reason. And, uh, he knew the walk we were going to be walking through, and um, just to have someone that you can relate to and not feel judgment uh, with, you know, from that person when you tell your story in private is such a blessing. And uh, Michelle, you're one of those, and some of the other ladies that's listening tonight. I've shared many things with you, and. Thank you guys so much and um Love you. We love you. Yes, we love you so much. And um Yes girl. Okay, I'm not gonna quit crying. <laughs> but um Krista, can you tell us when um your addiction started and how do you think that what it stemmed from, what caused you to turn to drugs?
1: Well, generationally, I was way predisposed. My dad was a drug addict, and then on my mom's side of the family, there was you know alcoholism and drug addiction. So uh, growing up, my mom, my mom and my my biological father's were, uh, how they even got together, and and during that time was so negative already it was it was the 80s it was down south it was it was it was still not okay really for a black of a black man and a white woman there was still a lot of looks um and my mom had come down from Detroit and uh you know from Michigan and she thought that this was going to be so different down here and she was very surprised Um, Coming down, and uh, you know, uh, my dad was already battling with alcoholism. And you know, the the fun going to the nightclubs and the discos and all that stuff really ended quickly because she realized that this friend of hers, who that's what she wanted was a friend, you know, Um, he was gonna turn into a maniac drinking and uh, drugging. So um, I'm not gonna go into the full details with my mom's story because that is her story, but she was very abused as a child. Um, And she happened to find those kinds of, or they found her relationships, even friendships that turned into um, things that horror movies are made of. And I'm just going to keep it at that. Um, I came into this world. uh, They said to abort me. uh, They said to put me up for adoption. And when my mom found out that when she took me to uh, a Catholic adoption agency, they basically said that I would sit there forever because I was half black and that nobody was going to, nobody was going to adopt me. And she just. She was emotionally beat up. She was emotionally um, crippled from the abuse that she had experienced from the ground up. And she just couldn't do that with me. So she brought me, she, she brought me into this world. And, uh, you know, my family, my, my grandmother, she was raising seven children. And when I came into the world, she still had teenagers. And my grandma said, I can't help you okay so but she loved me she said she's yours you take care of her and um by the time my grandma was able to start babysitting me and and you know my family were heavy drinkers right so i thought that that was the norm i i associated grandma's house with fun time and martinis and and you know, it was loud, it was smoky, it was fun. So I thought there was lots of laughing. There was jokes going on. And I just associated that with very normal and love. And even though my father biological was very abusive, my mother still didn't want to deny me of that side of the family, his side of the family. And when she would connect me, there would always be repercussions. It was never peaceful. There was always questioning and there was always berating. And there was always just stuff. It could never just be peace. And my dad wasn't living a peaceful life still. Um, and I would go and visit my grandmother and they would basically call my father biological and whatever hole he was in whatever crack house that he was in they would call him just to come and visit me and that's actually the last of what i needed was him in that condition and you know it's like i remember um and like i said mind you i know a lot of people would think why would you send her over there but my mom still wanted me to have a relationship with my family and she had hope and she was still very 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 emotionally damaged you know so I would go over there and it would just I remember waking up and my dad stayed in the apartment behind my grandmother's and I remember waking up and my dad was gone and another man was sleeping on the mattress on the floor. And here I as a little girl, you know, four or five years old, having to wander outside and go through to my grandma's house because I was scared, you know? And it's like, that's the stuff that was going on. And, you know, my mom, she wanted stability for me. She really did. and. It was frustrating when she would come and pick me up if I stayed at, on, you know, at her family's house, on her on her side of the family. Um, if I would stay there, I mean, there was alcohol that was put in my sippy cup, you know, for and then she would get me home and I'd be vomiting all night long if somebody put something in my sippy cup, you know. And it was just, there was so much stuff that we thought was normal. Put a little whiskey on their gums, do a little, you know. And we just thought it was normal and it wasn't. And um, I could say this and I could say this today. I love both sides of my family. I really do. But the way that we were raised and the, the belief systems that we had going on were totally messy and damaging. So that's you know, that was me coming up into just, just starting off. And uh, by, you know, my mom, by nine years old, uh, she, she married my stepfather. Um, And there's you know there's a lot that goes with that story too and i'm just like i said i'm certain things i'm not going to go into because that's my mom's story to tell but you know he was he was not healthy back then uh he was come to find out and she didn't know it he was an alcoholic and he was angry and so by the time they got married and my mom you know didn't want to be a failure she didn't want to you know, here, my grandfather, her father was very toxic and abusive, and if if you can imagine, and I'm just going to say it, his nickname was Hitler. He was a mean, German, racist man, and I'm just going to say that because I experienced it for myself. Um, That's part of my story, and I'm just going to say it. I love him. I forgive him, but... um. He was definitely uh, something else. And uh, she didn't want to look like a failure to him. And here she gets into a marriage and it's already started off. Lies all the way. And, you know, I was angry by that time. Because we had been alone for nine years, just her and I. And my mom had depression. Um, she had severe migraines. And due to abuse and being hit in her head, um, she had severe migraines. So it's like as a child, I had to learn how to be quiet, how to let her rest. And she had a lot to deal with. And she wanted a break. And she, wanted, and she asked me, she said, do you want me to marry him? And I said, mommy, I want a daddy. And the day of the wedding, she called me and she went, she had gone over to my grandma's house and she called and she said, I can't do this. And I said, please, mommy, I just wanted Abby. And when they got married, I felt completely lied to, let down, and I reacted. I was already reacting because when I would hear messages from my own biological father, if he left a message, come out of his drunken stupor, his crack, binge, and he'd left a message, and I heard that message, I would give my mom hell for two weeks, two years old, three years old, four years old. So I was already like a ticking little time bomb. And um, so by the time they got married and then I, I was deceived, you know, and and all that anger and frustration and my mom upset, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. I already started um, seeking, and this is at 10 years old, seeking male attention, uh, going into, you know, just, just going into all that. I remember um, by, by what was it? Fourth grade getting my first hickey, having to lie and say, I got a basketball injury and keeping a band-aid, this is the fourth grade. It was already beginning, just seeking male attention already, you know, and coming into that because I wasn't happy with the males that had been around me, you know? And it was already starting, you know, by fourth grade. Um, By fifth grade, I had to move back. We had moved to Virginia because my stepfather. He was a military man. so. We went from Florida to Virginia and then back. And by the time I got here, um, I had great hopes and and we're back in Florida around my family. And you know, it was hard for me to move away from my grandma. I don't care what dysfunction was going on or, or what we. I love my grandma on my mom's side, you know. And and uh, that was that. And I was very happy to come back. And when we got back, it was highly toxic, very. Um, If my mom vented about any of my behavior that was poor, instead of getting together and connecting together and confronting me together and consequencing me together, as soon as my mom would leave, the belt was coming out. I would go to walk. I would go to walk past my stepfather, and I was yanked up. It was always a surprise attack, and that was, you know, he still he still had to quit drinking. He still had anger issues. I'm not making excuses, but he he had a lot of issues in the anger department for sure. And the more that happened, the more angry I got the more disrespectful I got, I started to become the class clown in middle school. I became the class clown. I sought out any kind of attention. I didn't care what it was negative. Um, and I was getting suspended left and right. Um, and I got suspended right before school ended and I had to go to uh his high school at the time that he was an administrator in and worked the school cafeteria. So I had already seen all the high school boys and, oh, there's, you know, so-and-so's daughter and da-da-da-da. So I was already like, you know, I looked at it as this great thing. You know, I was excited. I was excited for every year that went by because I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. I was like, I'm going to be 16 and I'm out of here, emancipate me. And that was my attitude. I want the F out of here. And that's, that was my, that was my, my attitude. I had this beautiful, my parents had had this beautiful little boy, my brother, and I loved him so much, but if I was angry in any way with any abuse that I was getting, I was very mean to him. I was awful to him. I was awful to him. And he'd always forgive me and he'd hold his hands out to me later on and just want me to hug him and hold him. And I would and I would just cry and say what's wrong with me? How could I ever be so mean to somebody that is so innocent?
0: you know as Krista's is saying this tonight uh, what comes to my mind is you know uh, most people they don't just wake up and want to be an addict Uh, they don't just wake up and want to hurt people you know you ever heard hurt people hurt people that's really what's happened is they've experienced hurt somewhere along the lines in their life. And they're trying to hurt somebody else and let them feel that pain that they felt. A lot of times it's not intentional. Now I'm not saying there, there is some mean people out there and it is intentional. They do mean it to be intentional, but a lot of times we're not intentionally, Wanting to be that way. And, and a lot of times it's a lot of anger and unforgiveness that's built up in us for years and years. And like in Krista's case, it's been since very young age. So a lot of times when you see teenagers that's into drugs such a young age, we need to listen to them because you don't know what path they've had to walk. And people, I learned this when I was out on the streets looking for my loved one. sometimes, you know, and people would ask me questions and uh, it was always like, you know, well, what did you do wrong? How do you know that that parents did anything wrong? How do you know what's, uh, what kind of journey they walked? So if we can learn to just take off the shades and the Judgment, uh, you know, and listen to people, just love people because you don't know what kind of road they've been down. And when you hear stories like Krista's, this is where the hurt meets the healing. And when people are healed, healed people, healed people. And that's what I want her story to be like tonight, like an anchor of hope the one out there to you right now tonight saying hey she survived this so i just wanted to bring that out so as you begin to get older in your teenage years um can you tell us more of when you got deeper into the drugs i want to welcome some of you guests tonight that's joining i think carmen tina Banting Court. Thank you guys all for joining. If I miss oh, Tina, uh, Carmen, uh, Feliciano, hope I'm saying your name right. And uh, any of you guys that I have missed, thank you guys for joining. And uh, so as you got deeper into uh, seeking attention uh, from the boys, and you know getting in with the wrong crowd. Um, tell us when the addiction started and when you got really deeper in it.
1: Um, what happened was I started sneaking out a lot with my neighborhood best friend and I started sneaking out with her and we would, um, I worked at Winn-Dixie. So I would steal bottles of Mad Dog. I could barely say it. But I would steal bottles of that and I would steal cigarettes and we would drink all night till we all vomited and we thought it was the greatest thing, you know, and that's what we did. We'd sneak out and um, my mom started recognizing because she had rose bushes in front of my window and Mm. all of a sudden they had a part, you know, (laughs) I can laugh about some of this stuff now. It was a little crazy back then. but uh, And so, you know, I, I got caught and I didn't care. And I would, you know, stay out. And um, I started staying after at the YMCA. And this is, I had been held back in kindergarten and did the k class. Well, I got to go up and did operation upgrade for eighth grade so but right before i did that my ymca boyfriend and i i decided to get off the bus um, i just turned well i had been 14 and got off at his bus stop and i said well i'm going to hang out in your neighborhood and what happens there goes my virginity and we come out of this apartment building and about 10 minutes later here comes my stepfather and the police and i'm like oh dear god and the police are like you got to go home i get home and my mom said and I'm, I'm in that snarky mode where i don't care and my mama said she said krista you were doing one of two things you're either doing drugs or having sex. And I said, well, I wasn't doing drugs just like that. And my dad, my stepfather went and he ran to the room. He's like, he just, he's, I knew he was going to get the belt. I hit the garage door. I mean, I was 119 pounds at the time and that sucker came up and I ran and I ended up running behind a brand new neighbor that had just moved in, a single dad with his kids, and I hid behind him. And my stepfather just put, pulled him to the side and picked me up and choked me until I passed out. The cops were called. The cops were called, and the cop basically said, Hey, if that were my daughter, I'd have done the same thing. So here I am even more upset, even more mad, you know, this beautiful time that's supposed to be uh, a time between the husband and wife. I've given myself, um, and I'm already feeling low about that. And then all this other stuff, you know, and, um, you know, now I get, get to high school, go through, get, get through all that, get in there. And there's the, the popular, um, athletes and i was a conquest because i was an administrator's daughter so we can only imagine how that went i'm thinking i'm getting all this attention by the popular guys i'm a conquest and i started hanging out and sneaking and going out and and drinking and hanging out with girlfriends of mine and having sleepovers and that's how that all started and it was it it all started Basically, just the thrill of being out when I wasn't supposed to, but anger and and not having any self worth led to the drugs. So, I went out one night and I went out with two of my two of my uh, African American athletes friends, and we went out. And I happened to stop at a payphone to call my girl so she can hook up with one of the guys that I was with and two police officers rolled past us and they pulled us over when we left from there. And basically they found marijuana on one of the kids and they called up my stepfather and said, do you know that your white daughter is out here with two ends?" Yep. Well, then my stepfather rolls up and he's black. (laughs) So I, it was just a scene. They, uh, my parents put me in charter once they found out he had marijuana. I hadn't even smoked it. Not yet. I got to charter, which is like a behavioral place. And, uh, i get in there and as they're doing the assessment on me they're asking have you ever done this drug have you ever done this and i'm saying yup yup i never even heard of some of this stuff and i was saying yes so they put me into this place for three days and i'm seeing kids get hit with thorazine get wrapped up in a thing called the burrito i'm seeing all kinds of crazy stuff i'm like Good God, get me out of here. Like, I'm not doing all this. But in my frustration, you know, during counseling, and I feel like I was always being counseled, too. There was always some therapist. There was always this, and I never wanted anything to do with any of them. And the one that I did, I went to her place, and and she was actually somebody that can get through to me during this whole time. There was lots of counseling. They were trying to get me into a place for behavior and da, da 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 But the one woman, I ended up leaving and going to meet up some friends when my mom dropped me off. And she left her office and she was killed in a car crash. Oh, that wow. beautiful council that I love so much, that I actually cared about and I trusted. And that did something to me. I felt like it was my fault that she was distraught. You know what I mean? And I just, I really just went down after that. So I get put into an adolescent recovery center called the Arc, and right next to it is a juvenile detention center. And when I'm in this adolescent recovery center with 17, 18, 15 year old, 16 year old, some of them are court ordered to be there because they're about to turn 18. So when I got put into this program, all those drugs that I said I had done that I had never done, I was learning about the experience of them from the older kids. And, you know, none of us, none of us were ready. We're in this place. We're doing AA and NA and we're, we're doing meetings but we're all just absolutely still full of rebellion. We're sneaking into each other's dorms. We're having sex. We're sneaking cigarettes at meetings. We weren't, we weren't working the program. We were working the program. And when I got out, I knew what these drugs did. I was excited to go out and use them after learning. Oh, this makes you feel this way. And so, and so, so when I got out, I just, I still was sneaking out, um, but I managed to like. There would be a few months where I would get it together here and there. But at 15 years old, I had a job at I, I had a job at Winn Dixie. Still, that's that's how that went. That's when I had the job at Winn Dixie. I'm sorry, I'm I'm trying to remember all these dates and stuff. But my mom came to pick me up, and she had a loaner vehicle, and. She had just bought a brand new minivan and something was already wrong with it. And she got this purple Dodge Neon and she was going to give me and a girlfriend of mine a ride home. And I was like, let me just drive this around the parking lot while she runs into with Dixie to grab a few things. And I had this impulsive desire when I was ready to do something, it was like this, this this I can't even explain it it was so impulsive and I went and I just drove off I drove and we drove to a girlfriend of hers house we picked her up kind of went joy joyriding this woman was eight months pregnant uh, we picked up another friend of theirs uh, and we just went riding. and then I went to go drop the girl off I saw the dad he was on the porch. It was dark. I could see the cherry of his cigarette that he was smoking. And that was that. I waved to her goodbye and I left. And then all of a sudden, as we're leaving, we're being chased. And I'm like, who's chasing us? And I pull, I pull over to like, and this guy, and this car pulls up beside us. Pull over. Get out of that car. It's not a it's not a police car. It's not, I don't even know who the guy is. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is like one of those crazy movies where some nut, you know, is trying to run people off the road. I I didn't know what to think. Come to find out, my mom had called around, and the girl that I was with, she was young, but she was emancipated and married. She contacted her husband. Her husband said she's got a girlfriend over there. So when my mom called, she talked to the dad. The dad was the one that was chasing us. He was an ex police officer. So I didn't know any of this. So I just thought he was crazy. And when I ran, my boy said, go forward. My girl said, go left. And I went and I turned and I hit one of those poles with the, with the, the um, cables. Mm-hmm. And when I hit that, we flipped three times. I went out the window, the, the kid. the back had the the back window through his arm and amy was pinned her hand her arm was pinned. excuse me i ran around to see if she was okay she's like i'm all right i'm all right and she's like i said we're going we gotta go and and me and kendall we ran and it was like we were moving and didn't know what we were doing and he literally lived right back behind the school that we crashed in front of and we get there and his mama's thinking that he got shot we weren't in the best neighborhood already um he's thinking that she's thinking that he got shot and I was like no we were in a wreck they take off and go to the hospital and then there was some neighborhood there was some neighborhood guys and I was like I gotta get out of here before the cops come they put me in the trunk of the car and take me because there's helicopters flying at this time, and they take me um, to Palmetto. So at this time, like I'm on the run, I'm running from the police, I'm running to not be found, I'm staying at people's houses from school. Um, a lot of them are, are cocaine dealers um, that were doing, you know, little. They were ninth and 10th and 11th grade, but they were slinging cocaine. And for me to be able to stick around, you know, I had to sleep with them. You know, and it was like, that was how it was. That's how it was. And I was getting pumped full of cocaine. And uh, one night, I just had it. And I said, I don't want to, <coughs> excuse me, got a tickle. Um, I just said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not having sex with anybody. And I was paranoid off the cocaine. And they're like, well, the cops are coming. They're coming and they're coming to find you. And I was believing anything at that point. So I jumped from the motel that we were in. I jumped from two stories off the balcony and ran thinking the police were after me. And they were just lying to me because... I wasn't trying to give, you know, give in to having sex with them anymore. So I was I was useless. So <clears throat> excuse me. Um so there's that, and I finally end up back at my mom's. The the insurance company because of what she was driving was a, a loaner vehicle. And they basically said, if you confess to this, you know that it won't be on my mom's, uh, it won't be under my mom's name and or whatever. And I got on there and confessed and, uh, a detective came and picked me up and went and booked me and they still put it all on my mom, Put a $10,000 lien on her, on her house. And Here I am. You know, I had already done the Adolescent Recovery Center. I graduated from that. I think they basically just wanted me out of there. I come out. I steal this vehicle. And I went and partied before my court date. And I said, you know what? They're not going to do anything to me. And when I got before Judge Brownell, he looked at me. And I came in there with this cocky, arrogant, so what attitude and he said you are one of the most disrespectful children that i have ever witnessed since i've been up here you got no respect and he said and he looked over at my mom he said don't expect to see her for possibly from 18 to 21 and he hit the hammer and wow. he sentenced me to a level big program and i was like what i'm thinking i'm going home I look back at my mom, you know, now I'm a little girl now, you know, I'm not so bad anymore. I look back at her and I'm like, and they took me over to fingerprint me and I'm crying. I I don't even know. You know, it hit me, it hit me. And uh, so I had to go in and sit in a juvenile detention center for almost, it was eight months waiting on the program. So I had to be locked up before I can go get locked up. And, uh, while in this program, you want to talk about children that had it way worse than I did. Their, their, their upbringing or their lack of, and the stuff that was going on with their lives was horrible. And I was in there with them and, uh, you know there was tons of fighting there was uh, a staff that he was absolutely abusive and he actually pulled me into a cell they call them the D cells and they're away from the pod and they're out in the hallways by themselves because I, I had it I had it there was there was some abusive stuff in there and no what I did to get in there was not okay But there's been a lot of um, you. I'm sure you've heard throughout the news of uh, boot camps and stuff like that and abuse to children in those places. And I experienced some of that. I really did. And uh, so I did this. This staff got in my face and she said, I bet you want to hit me, don't you? And she started chest checking me and and like. Moving me with her chin and I didn't touch her, but I was removed and I was put out into the D cell and this male staff comes in and he goes, I just, and he comes into my cell without any other guard. They always had to have another person with them. There was nobody with him. And he says, if you were a man, I beat your M F and A. And that's what he said. So, with my mom, I had an uncle that was coming in that was a probation officer, and I had my mom that would come in for visits. And one of the most scariest things that I had to go through in there um, was actually telling my mother what was going on, knowing that there was guards everywhere that would hear me, and if they heard me, what they would do to me. Oh, wow. My mom got on the horn and she said, listen, my child is no angel, but I'm going to call the news channel. I'm going to call the news channel if you don't get her out of here, you know, and you know, I, I was able to get into my program, but before any of that, they had sent me up to Tampa and Tampa was way more intense than Bradenton had ever was ever. And I remember being in the courtyard when we were able to go outside and all I could see was the pink pony, this gentleman's club, which is like an oxymoron to me. I don't know what gentleman goes to anyways, (laughs) but I could just look at the strip club and I was like, that's where I'm going. When I get out of here, I went out of here. That's the only sign I could see over the wall and it's like what a setup that was so i get out of there i have to go to work and pay off the the loaner um for the loan that that's on my parents house i go to work at liz playborn um and uh there's this beautiful lady that was my manager that i'm still that is dear to my heart to this day and uh she was my manager and uh, she's, she's, she's in there with Sherry White Ministries too. She loves Miss Sherry White, and that's Miss Gigi. But, and we've had a full reunion since then, but I was her tough cookie. I was terrible. I wanted to do things my way in her shop, and I violated. I, uh, I asked my probation officer if I can go to Miami for my 18th birthday. He said no, and I went for two weeks instead of the two days that I was asking. I called my probation officer and I said, I will be back in town. You can pick me up if you'd like. And what I did, I took another bus at another time, at an earlier time instead of the later time that I took, that I told him. I went to Tampa for my 18th birthday. And when I went to Tampa, I hooked up with um, an older guy that was friends with my aunt. um, And I got pregnant. That was my 18th birthday present and it was a present but everything I had been taught in Planned Parenthood and everything it's okay you can have an abortion it doesn't matter Um, that it's not even a baby baby doesn't feel anything six weeks it's nothing it's nothing and I went and had an abortion and and I really really went down from there and i violated probation so i had to go back to juvenile detention center for two weeks as an 18 year old uh when i got in front of the court and i got in front of the judge he said what is she even doing here she's paid back just about all her restitution Crystal LaShawn altenbach if you get in trouble as an adult then i'll see you in adult court other than that but waste my time and get out of here and i was like ha ha I'm free, goodbye, I basically told my probation officer, F you, and I left, and that's that was my, so now I'm in this crazy mode, I'm free, I'm 18, I've just had this abortion, um, and and I, like something went off within me, and that's when I entered uh, in the full circle with, with what that judge said, and I'm going to just share this with you. Uh, just don't let me forget that part, please. Okay. About that judge. So right from there, I just, I I went crazy strip clubs, worked in them, um, tons of ecstasy. They called it the love drug. Um, and there was so much hugging and kissing and, and, people all over the club. And I thought, Oh man, this is an act of God. You know, that's, that was what was going on in my head. All this love and all this, Oh my gosh. I was like, this is, this is what it's supposed to be like here. This is, this must be, this is love. And you know, as the years went on, Those same clubs, the heroin was coming in, people were doing a lot of meth, people were smoking crack and all that, that lie that it was love in the first, second or third place, got super twisted. And everybody that was little, as we called it, weekend warriors, addictions had set in. And those sweet, nice guys that I, that we were throwing glow sticks together and all this, their girlfriends were coming around with black eyes. it it wasn't fun anymore and i got into uh an abusive relationship uh, for four years and uh coming out of that whole scene and and finally after the four years we had to go live with his mom because we couldn't live at his grandma's house his grandma was definitely a codependent enabler and i love her and i'm still connected to her to this day god bless her um, but she was, and and uh, we, my mom would call. How's everything do going? You know, she would call. Oh, we're great. Everything's great. And knowing that weekend, I still had two black eyes. He had a fat lip, and we were brawling. And uh, finally, Aunt Myra, God bless her. She's since passed. One of my dear, dear, dear friends um, from cancer. His aunt, she finally got on the phone with my mama and kept it real and said, I don't know what they're saying to you, but everything's not all good up here. There's knockdown drag outs. They're getting high. They're getting drunk. And it's not pretty. And it's in my mama's house. And so the truth was out. And once that truth is out, it's out. And um, but we ended up at his mom's house and she's since passed as well. And they were all shooting up. And then there was this guy running around on meth and he was running around with a machete. And I just, I just said, I can't do this anymore up here. You know, I can't do it. And I left and I went back to my mom's. And um, throughout this time, my stepfather, he had quit drinking. Um, and we were trying to mend you know, our relationship and rebuild it. And, uh, no matter what, and let me tell you something, no matter what, wherever I was, if when I got stuck in Miami, I got, I mean, I got stories for days of getting stuck out there and getting left and, um, thank God, you know, because there could have been a lot worse going on, but he always came and got me. He always, made sure that he came and got me and um, no matter what t- day or time it was, he always would come and get me out of um, unsafe, you know, and, and that was like our love. And, uh, but, you know, from there, it just, it just kept going in relationships and, and lost a lot of friends. And I had a mother, come up to me of one of those friends that I was in the adolescent recovery center with and I actually dated her son um, for for a while after we got out of that program and he passed away from a drug, a, uh, drug overdose. And the mother said to me, don't let him die in vain. And she ended up sending me a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And when she sent it to me, she sent me pictures of her son and her son's best friend who had also been in the adolescent recovery center and who had also died um, way too young. And I remember looking at their pictures and I remember reading the first couple of pages and I was hooked on cocaine. I was still such a mess, but I read it. You know, I read the first few pages, and, you know, I I have to come back to that book later, but the fact was, you know, uh, by 2025, 20, I just thought it was normal to be doing cocaine. I thought it was a normal thing. I thought that's what people did. That's a, that's a crew that I hung out with. I hung out with bikers. I hung out with clubbers. I hung out with... All different kinds of people but they were partying and that was the norm so I thought and then I would go to my mom's house and I would go get cleaned up and and she would get my hair cut and I get a pedicure and a fresh clean clothes from a house that wasn't being smoked in and 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 I get all cleaned up all over again and I go back out after resting and sleeping because I wasn't sleeping out there but I always had a house to be at. I always had a codependent enabler. I wasn't walking the streets. I wasn't shooting heroin. I wasn't prostituting myself. So I thought, so that made me okay. That made me not a junkie. So I thought, and then I'll just, you know, I'll get to where I'm, I'm going with it. But by 25, I met my daughter's father. Uh, he was a tattoo artist, you know. I wanted to go into nursing. He wanted to do tattoos. I figured we both live out our dreams, do that. I get my life together. You, you do what you love the most, and we come together as this power couple, and we run the world. It would be all good. Have a house. Have a life. It'd be great. Well, we were both two drug addicts, and. That didn't happen, but I did get pregnant. And when I got pregnant, I loved him so much. There was there was no uh, there was no abortion. That wasn't even a thought. We were elated. We were hot messes. We didn't have a pot to to pee in and a window to throw it out of. But we were together, and we were going to do this. And you know what? I ended up go I ended up in my pregnancy you know oh it's okay you can have a glass of wine oh you can have a glass of wine it's fine it's fine you know and I'd have a glass of wine and then I'd have two glasses of wine and sometimes three glasses of wine and I was still smoking cigarettes whenever just when I would go visit him Right. So I'm, I'm justifying this behavior. Oh, they smoked, you know, there's been women smoking with, you know, it just that. And I was listening to women in bars, you know, that, that had these twisted beliefs, you know, and it made it okay for me. And it wasn't, and I went into preterm labor and I packed up my stuff and I knew that I had to, and him and I were arguing he was staying out. He was, you know, I came in, I, after, because I was still working down in Bradenton. He was up in Tampa and I was taking all my money that I was saving to pour into his tattoo, his tattoo business and, and, you know, paying. And I got up there and I looked at the camera as I was going through pictures that he was taking and
0: This is part one of Krista Ottenbach's story of overcoming addiction. Uh, Join me on the next episode of the podcast, which will be part two, and we will conclude her testimony.